Hello, everyone. I'm Jerome Goodrich, and you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by A-Flight. It's been a minute, but we're back with new episodes exploring the work our teams do and the themes that tie us all together. Today, we're kicking off a series on all things data by talking with Brad Ettinger, A-Flight's head of technology, about the state of data engineering. Brad is notoriously optimistic, so I wanted to scratch beneath the surface to find out what's behind his generally positive outlook on the industry. We also dive into common challenges businesses face when dealing with data and do a bit of time traveling, looking back at how things were, what's possible today that was unthinkable just 10 years ago, and look ahead, speculating on where the industry might be a decade from now. Without further ado, let's go talk to Brad. All right, Brad. Um, it's been uh, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode, and I would be lying if I said I wasn't excited that the the first one back is with you. We've had a lot of conversations over the years, and I'm excited to uh, have the opportunity to share your brain <laughs> and your voice with our listeners. I guess just to to kick things off. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why we might be talking to you today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, for one, I'm a huge podcast nerd. And so I'm really looking forward to listening to maybe the remaining episodes of this season that I'm, I'm not on. But <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's pretty brave to listen to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I uh, really appreciate being here. So uh, I'm currently serving as A-Flight's head of technology. Uh, I've been in that position for a year, year and a half and uh, joined A-Flight about three years ago. And prior to that, I was independent consulting and doing pretty high leverage work on big projects, but with relatively small teams and being proud of a pretty high power to weight ratio in the work that we did. So we ended up in a lot of sort of niches where we carved out some influential things, working in supply chain management for some really big supply chains and doing numerical optimization for how things get shipped through the US. Uh, it was really, really powerful and high leverage work, and it opened some doors for us and uh, really expanded my view of what's possible within corporate organizations. I think taking teams that are really, really powerful in one skill that really have an advantage in analytics and giving them tools to be able to think higher level thoughts uh, was really kind of a passion of mine. Understanding domain expertise, subject matter expertise, and connecting that to some of the expertise that I and that my team had in software and in optimization, in mathematics, and in some of these niches. And it was really powerful, and it was very effective. And I feel like I learned a lot from that about how to help even large organizations, and, but really how to help many different scales of organizations make change, how to understand and imagine the sorts of changes that they want to make. Yeah. So in the time that I've known you, you've consistently encouraged me and challenged me to sort of elevate my thinking. Hmm. Say more. Yeah. To think a little less tactically, a little more strategically. And from those conversations, I think the ones that stand out most to me are the conversations that we've had around data. And it's always been interesting to hear your perspective on what we're able to do with data and specifically the new things that we're able to do with data. I've found your 
your perspective on this to be, let's say, optimistic. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. And that optimistic is certainly a word that's been applied to me before, usually with an adverb or two before it. Um, and I'm pleased that you referred to this as elevating your thinking. Sometimes we call it shift left, thinking about more abstract concepts or even more concrete implementations earlier chronologically in the phase of a project. And I see some connections between those modes of thinking. I feel like when we are able to apply more abstractions or more precise abstractions or some analogies or modes of analysis that we've learned from other experience, when we're able to apply those super early, even in the sales process and the design process, as we're conceiving what the product is to be built, often we will not only build a better product, but we will unlock new markets or new potential for our clients based on the synthesis of our expertise. And that's the thing that keeps me in consulting. And that's the thing that has gotten me really excited about the work that we've done and the work that we still do here at Ape Life. Yeah, I think that is true for me as well. Having the ability to see the potential of what's on the horizon makes the work, the sometimes <laughs> brutal work uh, yes. <laughs> of the present, all that more bearable. Well, I see that as much about judgment as it is about seeing potential in the future. Because you have to be able to look into the future and see opportunities, but you also have to be able to look into the future and see risks. And some of the most effective interventions that we've had in that area, some of the things that have been highest yield in terms of making good decisions for a product, have been saying no to what we judge to be poor ideas pretty early on. And so I think we've learned as much from models of data or models of software architecture that have not gained as much traction as we have from those that are popular or that are becoming popular. So Brad, with all of your optimism about the future and the potential that you see for how we engineer our data, mm -hmm. I don't want to point out the white elephant in the room, but <laughs> uh, we are talking about potential. And organizations have problems now. How do we get from point A to B? What sorts of challenges are we seeing in organizations that allow for this potential to exist? Hmm. Yes, yes. Very artfully calling me out on my relentless optimism here and <laughs> judging it against the reality that we do see that there is a lot that we can help with. I do think there are some archetypes of challenges to systems that form recurring patterns that we see here. Okay. We see a lot of teams focused on the operations of their systems, focused on keeping the lights on. And break, fix, break, fix, break, fix, break, fix, yep. break, fix. Yep. Uh, it's people can't work on the new feature because they're on PTO from the, the incident that we had last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right. It's, it's systems that get so choked out by their own maintenance that there is no time to think new thoughts. There's no time to innovate. There's no time to systematically fix what's broken. There's no time to do anything like a five wise analysis. Sure. And that is the first point that usually has to be unlocked in organizations that feel like that's what's choking them out. This is sort of a, this is sort of table stakes for being able to make change in data engineering organizations. You can't be choked out by your own process. Yeah. People need to feel empowered. Exactly. And not have organizational forces working against them to prevent them from making that change. 
That's right. And yet the nature of successful systems is that they grow, they accumulate features, they accumulate changes, they accumulate entropy. And if they're successful systems, I love legacy systems. <laughs> I've built a career on working on legacy systems and I have a great deal of respect for them and for the value that they deliver to organizations. But the reality is that they tend towards entropy and organizations that are working on successful systems, which are also known as legacy systems, <laughs> tend to this place of keeping the lights on and have to exert active effort toward pushing against that. Engineers have to be thinking, leadership has to be thinking about how to systematically improve the things that might go wrong here. So that's, that's, that's ground zero. You know, sure. That's, that's kind of prerequisites. And, and that's a hard problem. <laughs> if you're not in that place, solving that takes real engineering work and real change management. So I don't want to dismiss that. Okay. That's fair. What else? Sure. So, well, another problem that we see, even in organizations that are very high functioning, is a general lack of standardization in the things that matter. That the organization might be talking, using the same word to talk about two different measures in different places. Order and order. <laughs> order and order, right? Order might mean something really, really different to the front end website that's taking an e-commerce order than it does to the fulfillment back end that is doing whatever to send products to customers. There might not even be the same number of orders between them. Sure. Yeah. And so it, the problem comes when the organization has a KPI that talks about something like average order volume. Mm -hmm. Then when you you have some measure that matters across the organization, but people are using different language to describe it. So I do think the fact that organizations can be broad and distributed is not the problem. The fact that order can be used to mean two different things in two different places is not the problem. The problem comes when the organization needs to agree on the meaning. That agreement has to be driven, decided, communicated, generally top-down. It's not something that can be left to the separate organizations, to each unit, to make up its own decisions. I, I think that distributed decision-making in organizations is great. When it has to bubble up to something where there needs to be unity, you can't distribute your decision-making around those particular measures. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that the, much like what we were talking about before this this sort of death by a thousand cuts you getting into this break fix cycle that is a symptom of being a successful organization and mm -hmm. the the sort of silos that emerge around not having kind of a standardized way of thinking about things is probably also a, a symptom of the same thing i think the reason that these are all common patterns is that they're mechanisms that protect against worse damage Organizations don't have a lot of work to do keeping the lights on if they don't have a lot of lights to keep on. <laughs> there, there has to be a lot of stuff to do for people to spend all that time doing it. Now, I'm not trying to minimize that. People can be doing work that doesn't matter or work that's churn or work that is... In fact, that's part of my hypothesis here is there's often a lot of work to be done identifying the toil and eliminating it, which makes people happier. But I also think this lack of standardization, it's something that organizations need to delegate. They need to structurally figure out how to distribute their decision-making for the things that don't matter. So that triage of deciding what matters and what doesn't and where the decisions need to be made is, is incredibly important when building large systems. And I do think there's another thing that we often see in large organizations that's along the same lines which is difficulty in change management because of the number of people involved with particular routine decisions. When we look at organizations that take a week or two to deploy, there's nothing wrong with that because many of those organizations are very happy with their deploys. And 
they find them reliable, they aren't breaking any of their commitments or governance requirements or anything like that, right? They're, they're, it's good code, but they'd like to move faster. And often when we look at organizations that have that problem, when we look at organizations that find it slow to move, it's because there are a lot of parties involved with making the decision. And sometimes it's because anybody can say no and nobody can say yes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just because you have these general governance requirements. And sometimes that's inescapable. But the closer that you can push those people together, the more that you can centralize that decision making, the faster you'll be able to move. So if your governance people, instead of having to approve every change, can write the rules and help encode the rules and help work with engineering to make sure that there's fidelity to the rules that we're required to comply with, they can spend a lot less of their time on that toil that's involved in change management, and the cycles can become much quicker. And the, the engineering work for for this type of problem is, I would imagine, related to Conway's Law. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Conway's Law, a famous principle in software engineering that when organizations produce software, the structure of the software that they build mirrors the structure of the organizations that built it. Mm -hmm. And the, the reasoning is fairly simple is just because those are the communication structures available to the organization. It's easier to collaborate with people in your same group. And it's something that empirically we see in software too. And what we see is when you complect a bunch of responsibilities together to produce a product, then systematically you can end up in a place where even though there is this huge organizational desire and velocity to ship and to ship fast and to get changes out, there are often impediments in the way. And those impediments, they might look procedural, they might look like technicalities, they might look superfluous. But tying this back to what you were talking about earlier, they all came from a really good place. The reason that you've got regulatory compliance is because often there are a lot of regulations that you need to comply with. And you can't put that on the chopping block. You still have to solve for that. The answer is not to necessarily have the subject matter experts in the inner loop of every decision. Mm -hmm. It's to think higher level than that. It's to think more abstractly than that. It's to have subject matter experts spending most of their time distilling and understanding the subject matter and, and helping work to build systems that are faithful to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of your favorite collection of words to say <laughs> is data provenance. Ah, yes. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the challenges of data provenance. The challenges in data provenance is that nobody understands data provenance, Jerome. <laughs> Myself included. <laughs> so I, I do think it's, it's not a concept that we necessarily all have in our vernacular or necessarily have the same connotations associated. But I, I think if you know what data means and you know what provenance means, you can get a feel for the neighborhood here. It's understanding where your data comes from, understanding if there are potentially different versions of data that people might be calling the same thing, understanding how to avoid that sort of problem. The symptoms that we see from organizations that don't understand data provenance, they're very common and they bubble up to very high levels. It's, you know, we can't run this report for the CFO because we don't actually understand if it's before or after the restatement of the numbers that it was based on. We use the same identifier to refer to all of our information, regardless of when we knew about the fact. And so a lot of what I talk about when I talk about data provenance is immutability. It's writing down your facts and then figuring out what those mean later so that you can change that filtering process as you learn more about what the facts mean. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me that specifically with the issue of data provenance, I think that gets back into what we were talking about earlier about the potential of data engineering. What do you think is possible now that wasn't, let's say, five, 10 years ago? And where do you think data engineering is going within the next five to 10 years? Oh, I, I love this question. I love predicting the future. Uh, <laughs> we're holding so you to it. It looks so, so great in retrospect, but <laughs> I am very optimistic. I think that my optimism about data engineering comes from the things that I've seen develop over the last five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. It comes from a little bit of the survivorship of concepts that I feel like may have been nascent five or 10 years ago and are really, really, really common now or well understood. Like what? Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a ton that I would put in that bucket. Uh, cloud is certainly one thing that I think has been a huge direct and indirect enabler of the things that we've been talking about today. Sure. Five or 10 years ago, I was working on systems that were not in the cloud, they were on-prem. Uh, we were storing a lot of data. It was, it was big data work. And it, it would have been inconceivable to think about how we would stand up a, a staging copy or even a, a production too. It would have involved six figures of hardware and figuring out it would have been an enormous project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a project that we contemplated and decided not to do. Today, if we needed a duplicate of cloud production data set to do some analysis on it, try something with it, try a different index, if we needed it for an afternoon, right, and we had 20 bucks, it's incredible what the cloud has enabled. So that speaks to the direct effect that the cloud has had. It has actually enabled us to do things that we were kind of thinking about five or 10 years ago, but they definitely weren't in reach of our capabilities or our, our economics. But one of the things that cloud has allowed us to do as well is abstract some of this stuff. And I'm not a huge fan of handing over control of your data itself, of sort of just purchasing a, a magic database engine and letting the vendor take care of it for you. Uh, I'm still pretty skeptical of, of that general approach. But that having been said, there are a ton of options in cloud data all along the spectrum of control, many of which put a great deal of control into your hands and also give you the enablement. So the second benefit that I see from cloud data architectures is that they enable you to stop thinking about those super low level things and spend your time thinking about your application, the data, its semantics, It's another one of those questions that can elevate your thinking and form new abstractions. Just take take a bunch of stuff out of your head. Five to 10 years ago, I was thinking about which table space went on which partition, Mm -hmm. when it was going to run out and when to prune the data. And those are, there are things that we have abstractions so that we don't have to think about anymore if we don't want to. Yeah, I think um, what I'm encouraged by, I guess, for the future is just more focus on these capabilities that we have kind of come to light through Dora metrics, through the book Mm -hmm. Accelerate, Mm -hmm. these DevOps practices. What's your take on those? Oh, absolutely. And I think DevOps is something we can use directly. It's also a lesson that we can learn about how taking these abstractions seriously, about how not just toiling away at a problem, but making a class fix for it, making just a permanent fix. I, I don't ever want to have to upgrade OpenSSH 
manually on a server or something, right? Like, what is the solution for that? There's absolutely it, it, that's not something that any admin should be doing these days. And I think we can take many of the same lessons from the DevOps and SRE communities. We can understand we don't have to be doing things manually. We don't have to be toiling. And we can ask that question at many levels of analysis. Toil doesn't just have to mean typing commands into a Unix shell. Toil could be the detriment to your cycle time that you incur by having a process that is too complex or integrated too widely across the organization. These are all forms of toil that might fall under things that could be optimized by thinking a little bit about tighter abstractions that can be used to say more about the data and to do more specific things with it. I mean, I think that covers kind of where we were maybe five years ago and what's possible now. How about in the future? Where are we going? Where are we going in the future? This is, again, my having seen the, the past five to 10 years and building more and more and tighter abstractions to talk about the data that we work with, it gives me a lot of hope for that same pattern recurring in the future. I personally have learned a lot from the ideas of immutability and functional programming during my career. Uh, pure functions, data that doesn't change questions that you can ask and you get the same answer because you asked the same question in the same way about the same data, side effect free programs. This is this is all my gospel here. We love things that are easier to reason about. Exactly. And when the answer to the question doesn't change, depending on whether you got a, a new data load in between, it's a beautiful environment to work in. And it's one that enables you to say higher level, better things about your data. Sure. So I tend to be a bit insistent on architectures that support immutable data, architectures where you can write down facts that have happened and then figure out the consequences later. And that may sound kind of like event sourcing, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying event sourcing. I think that rhymes with a lot of this, but I think it, it rhymes with a lot of things. In the same way, I see bitemporal data architectures in traditional relational databases as having a very similar flavor and distinguishing between this is when the fact was true and this is when the fact was known to be true in our system can be really powerful in helping make those distinctions. And so if we take that a little bit further, I was around during my career for the transition from centralized into decentralized version control. I, I didn't use Git at the start of my career. Mm -hmm. I used CVS and Subversion. They built a lot of stuff that, that we build on now. So I'm not going to rag on them too much. But, but most people use Git these days. Most people use Git or another decentralized version control system. It brings a lot of advantages. And I think it established a lot of patterns it, it cut a lot of the trails that we need or that we needed to start thinking those thoughts about immutability more broadly. Most people know what a directed acyclic graph, a DAG is, or at least can understand what it is when they've worked with Git a little bit and have a mental model of how the commits fit together and how trees fit together and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think in addition to the direct effect that Git had on encouraging immutability, encouraging content addressed data, and some of these things where you ask the question and the answer doesn't change. It also pushed this understanding of those sorts of algorithms and data structures that are useful to work with immutable data into the consciousness of many programmers. And so I think in five to 10 years, I hope that it's going to be as déclassé to not version your data as it is today, not to version your code. So like database snapshots as kind of like the entry level to that sort of thinking. My hope is that we have abstractions that make the way that we're talking about this now sound primitive.
That is certainly optimistic. That that matches your uh, your mo. But I mean, think about talking about what distributed version control is to somebody who knew CVS. I feel like there are paradigms that we just don't have yet. There are abstractions that we don't have yet, and abstractions don't need to be complex. They're usually easy to understand in retrospect. Powerful abstractions are things like understanding full text search as a, a separate type of data. Right, Full text is a separate type of data that benefits from different sorts of indexing than a lot of relational data does. And so thinking about the types of database paradigms and systems that have succeeded and failed in the past, the ones that have succeeded seem to fall into having identified a niche, having identified an abstraction. And the abstraction is tight enough that people can understand it. It's tight enough that people can recognize it and apply it to their situation. But it's got a high enough power to weight ratio that there's reasonable stuff that can be done with it. It says enough about the data. It has enough semantics on the data. And so this is one of the reasons that I think schemaless databases haven't seen that much traction these days, because you can't say much about your data in a schemaless database. Types. <laughs> yeah, types, types, types. I really love the idea of typing your data. I love the idea of having as much understanding of the intended semantics of your data encoded in the system as is possible, given the constraints of the system. That's a, a huge predilection of mine. Those semantics are either encoded in your system itself in some sort of metadata, or they're implicitly encoded in the way that your systems interact with the data. And the latter is a lot harder to get information out of. It's a lot harder to reason about, and it's a lot harder to change. And so I, I thoroughly encourage setting the schema for your data as far in advance as humanly possible, because it just makes a lot of decisions easier. It's much easier to go from one regime to the other. So there are systems like Elasticsearch for full text search that have figured out that text is its own thing and needs its own indexing, its own algorithms, or at least benefits from them for a full text search. And similarly, if you're working with time series data, there's tools like KDB and FluxDB that are really, really common and really popular for working with this particular kind of time series data. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing event streaming, Kafka is really popular, really useful, really mainstream. And if you're not doing those kinds of things, relational databases are probably a, a good default for you. But in thinking about what sorts of non-relational databases have succeeded and failed, they're the ones that have identified those tight useful high leverage abstractions. And so in the future, when I'm trying to imagine what happens if we watch the space, it's things like vector databases, vector databases that would be used to store a whole bunch of embeddings like you might get from, from Word to Vec or from embedding some sort of unstructured input into a numerical model. And it might be a 300 or a 2000 long bunch of F64s. And a vector database is optimized for working with that specific thing and doing very specific queries, doing approximate near neighbor queries on it, doing things. If you didn't have a vector database, you'd be reading papers, you'd be writing those approximate nearest neighbor algorithms, you'd be implementing one. So if I, if I had to, to kind of summarize what I'm hearing you say is a lot of this is going to be about understanding the type of data that we're working with choosing the right tools for the job, and then letting the abstractions that let us kind of forget about those tools in some way emerge so that we can, you know, not have to deal with the toil that will eventually emerge from dealing with those tools. I think that's right. I would also reiterate that I think judgment is absolutely key in this process, because it's not just creating a new abstraction and adopting it. 
I think the concept of polyglot persistence took off as a way to to say, oh, your, your access patterns, your data, your semantics, it might all be different in different parts of your organization. So let's distribute that decision-making about how the data is to be stored. And, and I feel like that creates the same sort of problems that I was alluding to earlier, where when you have to centralize on anything, it becomes very difficult to coordinate across those data sources that are not just in different places and maintained by different teams, but, but that are conceiving of the data in different ways. And so I would, I would encourage caution in adopting this. I think that the time scale over which these new database paradigms succeed and fail is years to decades. Mm-hmm. I think it took a long time for relational data to become established. We don't see much of the hierarchical object databases, the, the kind of things that were popular when relational was a thing that was being argued for. And so I think it takes a little while. It takes some retrospect. It takes some time to figure out what has succeeded and failed. Empirically, I feel like we've seen a lot more success with specialized databases for things like free text, for time series, for event storage, for those sorts of things than we have for unstructured documents. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked a lot about data engineering as a whole, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of kind of specializations within the world of data that we could talk about as well and that we plan on talking about. What types of conversations would you hope that we have? Yeah, there's really two particular areas that come to mind today, one of which is compliance and general risk management that we see at a corporate level with growing organizations. Another being machine learning, which is a technology that is increasingly leveraged for more and more and cooler and cooler things and needs data. So 8Flight's been thinking and working in a lot of areas around data engineering, around data in general. And increasingly, we're seeing organizations globalize. And we are also globally seeing much more attention regulatorily to privacy, to security, to data breaches. These are things that impact more and more organizations in a higher touch manner than they ever have before. And these are good things. We really want to be thinking about the privacy and the security of our customers and our customers' customers. Absolutely. Right? These systems that we build, these are really good things to be thinking about. Uh, I don't mind having them encoded in laws. I don't mind being accountable for these things. But they are things that make us think a lot harder about privacy and about security during the design phase. There are things that need explicit controls. There are things that need governance. And that takes work. Yeah, there are real implications there. You also mentioned machine learning. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, sure, yeah. I'm really excited to talk more about machine learning and to watch as we learn more about patterns and practices that we work, abstractions that work. We've certainly learned a lot in the last five to 10 years. So I'm really interested in helping organizations that have problems that are both data and machine learning, that have large experiments that they need to run and that they're managing the data for them. They have lots of iterations on a model and they need to test them against each other. There's lots of just purely data management problems with an ML flavor in that ecosystem. And so I think in the same way that we have some abstract tools that can lever us up in general data engineering, there's probably a lot there to offer for machine learning as well. There's a lot where whether or not machine learning ends up supplanting handwritten algorithms in some lofty way in 10 or 20 years, Mm -hmm. whether or not we're still writing code, (laughs) 
the lessons from this process, the lessons from understanding what machine learning needs of data, what it needs of data architectures and of data pipelines, and what sort of new concepts it puts into our heads is going to be incredibly useful to the industry. I love that. Uh, well, Brad, this has been an absolute pleasure. What a way to come back to collaborative craft and to share a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for your time. Likewise, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. I want to thank my guest, Brad Ediger, for sharing his perspective on data engineering, an appreciation for how far we've come, and his optimism for what lies ahead. We're going to continue exploring different data-related themes in upcoming episodes with first-hand examples of how small, interdisciplinary teams across development and design work together to deliver some really exciting products. So please stay tuned. Are there things that you're seeing in your organizations that we didn't cover in this episode? What are some of the ways that you're seeing craft evolve within your teams? Let us know by heading to eighthlight.com slash collaborative dash craft or tweet us at at collabcraftshow. Please like and follow Collaborative Craft on your preferred podcast app. If you like a particular episode, share your comments. We'd love to hear from you. And if you know anyone who's curious about craft software and the types of conversations we're having, please tell them about the show. The more people hear about the show, the more we can help others unlock their potential and build a better future together. Thanks again. Hi. This episode was produced by our friends at Dante32. The challenges in data provenance is that nobody understands data provenance, Jerome. <laughs> Myself included. <laughs> <laughs>